Yeah, good morning. Welcome to Central to the concluding week of our series, Intentions, where I'm going to be concluding a message I started last week called Rifts and Reconciliation. Rifts and Reconciliation. Now, last week I opened the text to Mark chapter 3 and showed how Jesus had some interesting encounters with his own uh, biological family that caused tension, but rather than reject that relationship, Jesus reset it. Through that text in Mark 3, we saw how the role of others, inadequate communication, faulty boundaries, uh, then there's two views on, on, the, on the relationship, and then single events can ultimately create tensions that lead us to reject relationships rather than reset them. What Jesus does in verse 31 through 35 is essentially make our relationships with family relative, not absolute. There are people who believe that irrespective of what they say, irrespective of what they do, your tie to family needs to remain no matter what. But Jesus clearly challenged that. He reset family relationships and made relationships with our families basically relative, not absolute. So today what I want to do is I want to ask ourselves, what does resetting a relationship actually look like? I'm suggesting that rather than reject relationships, the division that we have in the world ultimately calls for God's people to be experts at resetting and slow to reject. I embrace what Augustine said many, many years ago, that peace in society depends on peace within the family. So how do we reset rather than reject? So that's what we're going to look at today, resetting relationships. Now, I want to lay the theological foundation for this. So when it comes to resetting, I think there's two things that we need to bear in mind. Firstly, a commitment to reset a relationship doesn't mean that you forget the past pain. A commitment to reset doesn't mean that you forget. The Bible teaches that sins can be forgiven but the scars of brokenness can always be seen. So when I was a seven-year-old child, I had a serious problem with my hip that basically left me needing surgery. And when I was seven, the scar in my hip went from my hip all the way down to my knee. I can still remember what it felt like to be on my bed as a seven, eight, nine-year-old child, unable to walk, not being able to attend school for 18 months, laying on my bed, listening to my friends playing outside, wondering whether I would ever walk again, thinking, and this is what I thought, my mother had recently come to faith in Christ, God, if this is life, it sucks. That's basically what I was thinking. I can still remember that but you know what's happened? I've grown. And because I've grown, the scar that was once that long is now only this long. A commitment to reset ultimately means that you have a commitment to grow. And as you grow, the ability of the past scars to control your future behavior shrinks. It's not because you've got divine amnesia, it's actually because you've grown. Commitment to reset grows you, and that's 
the first thing that we need to bear in mind. The second thing that we need to bear in mind is if we're going to reset our relationships, then we have to keep those family relationships, those relational ties in their proper biblical perspective. Doing that helps us control the emotion. The key thing to navigating difficult, tense emotions is for you to stay one tick cooler than the person you're in conflict with. It's that simple. One tick cooler. That's all you need to be. In order to do that, remember to keep proper relationships in their perspective our relationships in their proper perspective. How do we do that? By remembering what Jesus said. The shed blood of Jesus is more powerful than the shed blood of family. The shed blood of Jesus is more powerful than the shed blood of family. The shed blood of Jesus ties us into an eternal purpose that gives life meaning even when there, are, there is frustration in our relationships. I read of a story that was printed in a national uh, publication of two brothers who grew up with their grandmother in a large city. As these brothers grew up, they got involved in rival gangs. And the article actually talked about what would happen if the gangs required them to do something that would put the other one in harm's way. Without hesitation, each brother said that their affiliation to their gang was more important to them than their blood connection to their sibling. What they were living out is a principle that there is shared purpose, and that shared purpose has more powerful than shared blood. Now, I rejoice that the shared blood of Jesus, okay, ultimately is for our good, but it ties into the same idea that the shared blood of family is not as important as the shared blood of Jesus. And that means that all family relationships are relative, not absolute. If we keep those two realities in mind, we can control our emotions and we put ourselves in a position to be able to reset our relationships. Now, the question people often ask is, why should I reset my relationship? What's the purpose of this? Well, if you hear nothing else, hear this there are consequences on your life when you live estranged. There are consequences for you and the people around you when you live estranged. Firstly, there is damage that you cause to the next generation of people who never experience the power of multi-generational relationships from all sides. There's a, a consequence to that. Second, that next generation never learned the skills needed to live in a relationally connected world where it's easy to cancel relationships. If we don't work through the tension and the estrangement, they think that relationships can be canceled as easy as the internet service that they use. It can't be like that. If we truly want peace in society, if Ukraine tells us nothing else, 
It tells us that we need to look, work through tension. If we don't work through tension, our kids and the next generation will never learn the kind of skills necessary to work through conflict in a peaceful way. Thirdly, the reason that we need to work through estrangement is it's actually good for us. It's actually important for us. See, despite the absence of conflict that comes when we live estranged from someone, people who live estranged from other people don't have inner peace. Yes, they rejoice in the fact that their relationship does not have that much tension and conflict anymore. They rejoice over that. But invariably, something will happen in the regular hours of a day or the regular rhythms of a week that will remind them of that estranged relationship. And yes, they may not have conflict, but all of a sudden they realize that something is broken and not right. See, when you're in an estranged relationship, you kind of choose between your security and your freedom on the one hand, okay, and your discontent and your bondage on the other one. You're oscillating between the two. You rejoice that you don't have the tension that you used to have, but something will happen that will remind you something is broken in my life and I can't fix it. You oscillate between the two. Living that kind of life damages you on the inside. And as healthy as you think it is to press reject, the far better solution is for you to work out how you can get to a reset because only the reset gives you the inner peace that you need. Inner peace is found when you navigate the tension in a relationship, not when you avoid it. So it's not just about other people. It's actually about you. Fourthly, if you are a follower of Jesus, the reason you need to press reset is because you hinder the message of the gospel that we have been given if you proclaim to a person that they can be reconciled to God, that the worst offense that there is is the sin that, that hinders us, that blocks us from God, that can be forgiven, but the relational tension that I've got with somebody else can't. We hamper the message of reconciliation if we preach reconciliation, but we don't live it. This is what Paul says, how he puts our ministry in the world in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That, would, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. If it just stopped there, it would be fine but it doesn't. And he has committed to us, what? The message of reconciliation. Who's he given it to? You and me. Paul goes on. 
We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. It begs the question, how can God powerfully make his appeal through us for reconciliation when we're living estranged? How how can he do that? We implore you, Paul says, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now, he's talking to people who've already had their sins forgiven. You recognize that, right? He doesn't say be reconciled to someone else. He actually says be reconciled to God. Implicit in this is that we work on reconciliation with others when we're reconciled with God. God who made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, it is much harder to preach the message of reconciliation when we don't live it. Now, I can keep going here. But there's a foundation for resetting. We recognize that a commitment to reset is not, uh, does not mean that we forget. We recognize that resetting is based on the reality that the shed blood of Jesus is more powerful than the shed blood of family. Then we ask that question, why do I need to practice this? Spiritually speaking, because this is what's involved in following Jesus. We do whatever we can to live at peace with all people. And then there's that personal benefit. When we practice resetting, we manage to live with that sense of inner peace. And then it comes to other people, those people around us. They learn the skills that are necessary for peace to exist in the family. How can peace exist in society if peace doesn't exist in the family? That's why. So this is the foundation. This is the the foundation, I believe, that Scripture constructs. Now, before we get into looking at what is involved in resetting, I just want to state the obvious here. If you're listening to this, there are kind of two groups that are going to be impacted by this, right? The first group that are going to be impacted by this is is what what is called the reconcilers. Those are those people who ultimately live estranged from someone, have made that choice, to separate from someone because it was the safest thing for them to do and may well be challenged through this message and through the last few messages to ultimately recognize, you know what, maybe I need to reset this, not to reject it. Maybe I need to kind of step forward. How do I do that? The second group of people listening to this are those who live estranged because it's their behavior that has led to the estrangement. This message is hard for you to hear because a lot of what I'm going to share here are tips that are essentially beyond your control. If that is you, if you are living estranged because of your behavior, what I would encourage you to do is to recognize that for the person living estranged with you at some point in time, something may well happen that will trigger something that will remind them of the past and then they very well may. In fact, I would say they're likely to reach out in some way. In that moment, seize the open door, pray for discernment, talk to a professional counselor if you need to, and see what can be done to at least be willing to acknowledge your responsibility in the dysfunctional relationship and leave the rest to God. You can't force other people to be reconciled to you but you can take responsibility for what you've done. 
So with that in mind, I, I want to talk about what's involved in resetting a relationship. And like with last week, I'm going to make an acrostic of this reset. Resetting a relationship begins with the letter R, and that is that willingness to rethink the event. Rethink the event. If you remember last week, I had an illustration about this single event that many of us who live estranged trace our, our kind of broken relationship back to a critical moment. And if you were abused in the vilest, uh, vilest of possible ways, then that kind of estrangement, if you remember, I took the top off the bottle and I squeezed it and everything came out because there was a violation of you that is of the worst possible kind and you did the right thing. You took a step back and you said, my safety is important and the safety of people around me. If that's you, you did 100% the right thing. That's the picture of estrangement in a single event. That probably doesn't need to be rethought. Because if you were violated in that way, then rethinking it will often make you feel that you were responsible for something that was not your fault. But in the other analogy, and this is where I'm going, for the most of us, Estrangement on a single event happens because there have been relational tensions that have gone on for years. And that extra grace required person in your family or in your friendship group or in your small group continues to stoke the fire every time you get together. Every time they're pushing and they're pushing and you're trying to stay cooler, trying to stay cooler, and something happened and you were like, that's it, I'm done. And rather than that picture of taking the top off the bottle, do you remember? It's like taking a knife and it's a slit down the side. It's a key moment, but we treat it like the first type of estrangement encounter when in reality it's the second. And the problem is the, the more pressure we think on this, the more we get taken back to this, and the kind of more the, the lava and all of the junk stuff starts to flow out. That second experience is my experience with my father. I shared with you, I had a very interesting relationship with my dad. And there was one moment when Vipka and I were married. We had three young children under the age of five living in London where that relationship had the potential to go to total estrangement. And this is where I needed to rethink it and I needed to rethink my part in this. So the story is my dad was now married to wife number four. She'd been diagnosed with terminal cancer and she would have about a month to live. And about a month, three or four weeks before, she found out that my dad was cheating on her with another woman and kicked her out. She then passed away three weeks later and then the decision the Vipka and I had was, do we go to the funeral, yes or no? Now, do you think my dad wanted me to go to the funeral? No, he did not. Why? Because to do that was basically, he felt, treating him badly. Vipka and I went to the funeral. 
And I remember thinking about why I was going to the funeral, and I remember telling Vipka, Vipka, it's really important I go because it's really important that we show our respect uh, for her, for her children, and for her extended family. And I told myself that was the only reason I was going. And so I went, and my dad did not like it. He called me very, very angry, and there was this period of estrangement that happened for quite some time. Now, I felt justified in doing this. I looked at his behavior, and I thought it was morally reprehensible. The thing is, though, the longer I sat in this, and especially when the Holy Spirit works through your wife, it's like, Craig, you recognize you need to do something here. The only person who follows Jesus around your dad is basically you. And this was the motivation that I had as a teenage boy to reestablish connection with my father. It was always me that chased him. He never pursued me. And in this moment, I'm like, forget it. Why, why am I even doing this? This is just not worth it. And so I feel safe. I feel secure. I feel free from all of his behavior. But every now and again, I would be taken back to this moment, and I would be disturbed on the inside because something wasn't right. So I'm processing all of this. And as I'm processing all of this, the Spirit said to me, Craig, why did you go to the funeral? I'm like, well, because I wanted to show my respect to, to her and to the family. Craig, why did you go to the funeral? Well, because I wanted to show my respect to the family. Craig, why did you go to the funeral? And then I realized that there was a part of me that went to that funeral to show everybody in her family that I was nothing like him. Nothing like him. See, one of the major motivations for me growing up was that I would never be anything like my dad. I tell you, friends, the best place if you want to live a morally upright life is to throw yourself into the church. Right, this whole idea of the boundaries on the outside. Because you see, on the inside, I felt if I truly would let myself go, I would become more like my earthly father than my, than my heavenly father. And I didn't want to do that. And so I had these external kind of pressures on the inside that were healthy, but I suddenly realized my identity as a child of God wasn't as strong as I thought it was. And more than that, I realized that I went to that funeral to show everybody else that. And I also realized that in that moment, my dad understood why I went only too well. I was passing judgment on him. And I was. See, in that moment, I had to rethink the cause of that estrangement and recognize that while what he did was morally reprehensible, if I'm entrusted with the message of reconciliation, then it is the goodness and the kindness of God that brings people to repentance, not judgment. You see how this works? Now, I'd like to tell you I learned that lesson in a week, but I didn't. It took me quite a long time to get to the point where I was willing to acknowledge that while his behavior put all the fuel to this estrangement. My motivation on the inside didn't help. And it started to soften my heart, and I recognized, you know what? 
I basically have to think of myself in a completely different way. I wasn't perfect in this, and the only one that is is Jesus Christ, and I learned to play my part. Romans 12, 3 says this, For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Friends, if you want to reset your relationship, rethink the moments around it, recognizing that our internal motivators, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, are often visible to those with eyes to see. We've got to be willing to rethink our part in this. Second, the E, engage quickly. The reality is, if you've had a, a tense moment with someone on their way to church, then you can engage pretty quickly in church. But if you've had a, a tense moment with someone through this week, it, it's really easy to let one day go into two days, go into three days, and the longer you leave it, the harder it becomes to reconnect. So the, the message here is, look, the key to reestablishing a relationship is to reset and to reconnect as quickly as you can. Now, if you're in our family, that will be pretty direct. It will be in the form of a text. It will be in the form of a phone call. We are Europeans, after all. We tend to be more direct, and Vipka's a German, very direct. So it kind of tends to be, hey, you know what? Uh, this situation last night was really tense, and I really hope that in our relationship moving forward, we'll be able to move past this and get to the point where this no longer stops us from having a healthy future. That's the way we do it. That would freak some of you out. You're like, I could never do that. Well, maybe you could say, hey, guess what? I bumped into Jane in the supermarket, and Jane said uh, uh, for me to tell you hi, so I'm just doing that hi. I look forward to seeing you soon. The point is reconnect. Find a simple way of doing it. Because the longer you leave it, the more angry you get. And the more angry you get, the walls get built up. And then when the walls are built up, you will get together and that encounter will be like a sledgehammer knocking that wall down and the whole thing can explode. I love what we read in Ephesians 4. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Not letting the sun go down here is a way of saying that anger must not endure. Some of us are literal on that. Oh, no, the sun is set and I'm still angry. Some of you may need a night. That's maybe what you need. That's not the point. It's not to be taken literally here. What is to be taken literally is your anger needs to be dealt with quickly and set aside or it will destroy the relationship. Now, the word foothold here is the word place. The idea is that we should not give the devil any place to ultimately come in and use our anger as a Trojan horse, because that's what it is. It, it's a Trojan horse. It destroys the relationship. We feel it's right, but it's wrong. Anger the, does not fit well with the new being that we've come, become in Jesus Christ, and the longer we leave it, the more angry we will get. 
engage quickly, even if it's simply. Third, set boundaries. So revisit the event, engage quickly, and then set boundaries. Resetting doesn't mean that you accept everything as it was before. It really doesn't mean that. Now, here's the point. Some abusive people will only allow you in the relationship if you accept it the way it was before. That's something that we can't accept. But we need to, therefore, set boundaries. And here's the thing. Family life, if you think about it, relationships, all kinds of relationships, ask us to live with two values in tension. On the one hand, there's individuality. There's this idea that for this relationship to be truly meaningful, you have to accept me for who I am. But at the same time, it's also togetherness. In order for these relationships to work, then I need to modify some of who I am, some of what I want for the family, for the relationship to be intact and to be united. Estrangement is often pursued because the together experience smothers someone's individuality or someone's individuality is so pompous that you want nothing to do with it because you haven't got any room to breathe. Now, Pillamer in his book, Fault Lines, by the way, some of you are buying the wrong book. There are two books called Fault Lines that have been released recently. I think one was in 2016, black and white cover that basically is on race relations in America. I've read that one, interesting book, read it if you want to. The one I'm talking about is Carl Pillamer. It's a blue and white cover. I think it's got red writing on the front. That's a different book, okay? Um, so anyway, Pillamer in his book cites a guy called Bowen who shows that we often cut off relationships with relatives and close friends, not because we don't care, but because we care too much. When the emotional intensity of that relationship gets to that point where we can't take it anymore, estrangement, rejecting, is actually the release valve that you've pushed. You step back. Stepping back in order to move forward is actually really, really healthy. We just need to step back for a reset, not a reject. What we need to do in that moment is we need to establish boundaries. We need to set clear terms. Then once we've established the boundaries, set the terms in our own mind, we need to be very persistent with the limits. It's kind of like raising a child, right? Hey, this is what I want you to do. This is what I don't want you to do. The more consistent we are with the boundaries, how many times do our children overstep? Many, many times. The more consistent we are with the boundaries, the more they realize that these boundaries are real and legitimate. Now, here's the point. Many of us in our relationships don't know what those boundaries should look like. We don't know how we even set them. We certainly don't know how we go about enforcing them without destroying the relationship. So this is my advice. Make an appointment with a counselor if you need to. Seek professional help. 
go to them and say, I want to talk through a relationship that I've either rejected or I'm in danger of rejecting when I need a reset. But in order to reset, I need to establish healthy boundaries. Would you please be willing to work these boundaries through with me and then talk me through how when they do what they always do, I can go about clarifying those boundaries, enforcing those boundaries in a way that ultimately makes any rejection their choice, not mine. This can take time because our relationships are that complicated. They need that kind of investment. And that's why we have people there in our own community. Bless God, we're actually in, uh, in Holland. There are so many good Christian counselors out there. If you're struggling, go and see someone. If you don't know who to get, then contact our office, our care department, uh, Jen Stirler, or anybody else, and they will be glad to uh, just give you a list of counselors that are out there. But the bottom line is this. Good boundaries make relationships stronger, providing, of course, you know what you're fencing in and what you're fencing out. That's the hard part. Good boundaries make for good fences, as long as you know what you're fencing in and what you're fencing out. Okay, this one. Expel the past. So you're making this commitment to reset. You're reviewing your part in this process. You're engaging quickly. You're setting the boundaries. And then as soon as you start to re-engage in that relationship, the past is going to rear its ugly head again. A guy called William Faulkner made a brilliant quote. He said, the past is never dead. It's not even past. <laughs> the past is never dead. It's not even past. In other words, when we're living with relational tension and relational estrangement, the past and the present are intertwined as if they're one. And whenever you start to think about the present, whenever you start to look towards the future, invariably something will happen in that relationship that will trigger you and all of the emotions and all of the memories will start to come back and you're right back to where you were before. To reset, we have to be able to expel the past. Now, what I'd like to do is like to draw your attention to this. And I would really love a volunteer. Anybody good at monkey bars over here? Come on, we gotta have somebody in here. You, you wanna do it? You're gonna have to jump. You can come over here, we got somebody. Give it, let's give them a round of applause. I bet he didn't think he was gonna do the monkey bars when he came to church this morning. What's your name? Owen? Okay, Owen, you're gonna have to jump a little bit here. You good with that? Okay, you've done these things before, right? Okay, so I got a little stool here, but I think even on this thing, you're gonna have to jump. Go this side, come this side. Can you go on that and then climb that way? Now, what I want you to do first of all, all right, is just go across the bars as you would normally. All right? There you go. All right, jump down for me. Now. This is a simple question, right? How did you do that? Just grab the next bar. You grab the next bar, right? Mm -hmm. So if you grab the next bar, what do you have to do with this one? Let go of 
You have, you have to let it go. This kid's good, right? So you can see what happens, right? So in order to move anything, there needs to be momentum, there needs to be energy, but it's not good enough simply to reach forward. What do you have to do? You have to let go. Now, I want you to do it again, Owen. Okay, what hand do you use, right or left? Right? I want you to do it again, but I want you to see how far you can get if your right hand always stays on the first bar. Keep it there. Keep, that's your right hand, so keep your right How far can you go if your right hand is always going to be there? You're saying not that far. Now, when you look at it this way, it makes sense, right? Now, what I want you to do, and this is going to be a bit of fun for you, what I want you to do is I want you to do what most of us do in our relationships, okay? I want you to take your left hand, I want you to go on there, and I want you to see how, how long you can hang there. Right, we're just going to keep going. He's probably going to be there for a while. There you go. Give him a round of applause for me. Thank you, Owen. You can take a seat. Thanks, buddy. When we see it like this, it's pretty obvious, right? In order to move forward, we have to be able to let go. But here's the thing. Why do we struggle with letting go with relational estrangement? I want to suggest to you that it's not simply because it's emotionally difficult. The reason we can't let it go is because the person we're estranged with doesn't view the past in the same way that we do. They just don't think it was that big a deal. And so we talk to them about this past event, and they just can't see it. And there's a part of us, when it comes to the past, and this makes it really difficult, there's a part of us that are only willing to let go of the past if the person we're estranged with ultimately views the experience 100% the same as we do. We want the past to align. Friends, intense relationships, it seldom does. And the key to mature relationships is when we can look back at the past and see it differently and move forward. You're getting this? You think about this in the context of what Paul says. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching for those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. What if rather than getting our head fixed on the person seeing everything that they've done in the way that we do, we fix on this? What if we recognize that despite all of the pain of the past, relationships are really about the future? That reconciliation is actually about tomorrow. What if we recognize that just like estrangement doesn't happen with, for most of us through one single event, but through hundreds and thousands of interactions that take place over time that lead to this little slit, this little step of estrangement. What if we viewed reconciliation the same way? What if we viewed it as a process and as a discipline that through hundreds and, and thousands of small interactions with people that we have conflict with, over time we get to the point of having a relationship that is mature. Friends, the only way we 
we'll be able to do that is by focusing on the upward call of Jesus Christ. The reason we need reconciliation is not because the past needs to be aligned, but because the future needs to align. And when we get to that point, guess what we're able to do? We're able to give fully to the relationship even when they never say sorry. It took my dad being on his deathbed to say sorry to me. But you know what? I didn't need it because the present and the future were so important that I needed to detangle them and let it go. C.S. Lewis said this, Getting over a painful experience is much like crossing monkey bars. You have to let go at some point in order to move forward. Yeah, we do. And letting go is a whole lot easier when we ultimately move on from thinking that the only way forward is to align perfectly in the past. Can I suggest the best view for us is to recognize how important it is to let go so that we can align in the future. The problem is the past isn't dead. It's very much alive. For many of us, the past is more present than the ever-present God himself. Let it go. Lastly here, and the team are going to come on the stage at this point. Take responsibility. Take responsibility. Proverbs 28, 13 says this, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them find mercy. For some of us, we may need to take responsibility for the fact that we hit reject too soon. Some of us may need to take responsibility for the fact that we think it's possible to preach with power in ministry of reconciliation, but not live it. Maybe that's all that we need to confess. For some of us, maybe it's more than that. But I've asked the team to sing a song called Resurrender that talks about laying things down at the altar. Again, I am convinced that peace in society ultimately depends on peace in the family. And I encourage you, as you listen to this song, let go of whatever you need to let go. Detangle your past from your present. If you need to come to the altar with that, please do. But would you be willing to stand with me? This may be new to you, but, but let's stand as we sing this song. Engage with the words of this song, even if you listen as it's sung over you, and let it go. And if there's an action step that you need to take again, the altars are open, please feel free to come to the altar, kneel at the altar, and just let it go. Listen to the words as they wash over you. Father, we thank you for the power of your word that enables us to reset. Father, we know that there are two people, two parties involved in reconciliation, and we thank you that in the reconciliation that we have experienced with you, you made the first move towards us. Father, for some of us, that's the move you're asking us to make today. You're asking us to move forward, but it hurts. And I just pray that as our team sings this song over us, that we would be willing to resurrender ourselves to you, that you would give us the strength and the power we need to take the next right step. In Jesus' name.